from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9 and 14 through 29. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Verse 14 onwards. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus re replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This is God's word. I have, um, I've never read a book uh, or I've never seen a movie that didn't involve some sort of conflict. The reason is books like that never get written and movies without conflict never get made because no one would believe in a story that way. No one would believe in a story like that. If you were to read a book, you typically want to find yourself in one of the characters. You want to identify with someone in the story. If you're watching a movie, the same thing. And a movie without conflict or a book without conflict or a story without conflict isn't a story because life is about conflict. See, life is a series of problems that must be solved. That's what we learn right away in life. 
Life is not lived on the mountaintop. Mountaintops are wonderful. We talked about this last week. They are needed, but that is not where your life actually happens. Life happens in the valley. Last week, I said that the story before us is life in miniature. It captures the ups and downs of life, how one moment you can feel like you are literally on top of the world, where everything is possible, where you sense nearness to God, you sense nearness with unity, with like everything that is. Like there's this kind of union that we have when we're um, so in tune with life. We're so connected with God. There's this unity that happens. It's interesting that at the fall um, in Genesis, uh, the, the fall is um, recorded or described as like this disharmony, this disunity, this like Adam and Eve were like afraid of each other and then they were afraid of God. There's like at, at one like bliss or shalom or peace is like this integration and then sin is disintegration. And so when we are on the mountaintop, we feel so integrated with everything. We feel so integrated with the weather, we're so integrated with the ocean or the, the mountains, we're so integrated with God and with peace with our friends, and it feels so integrated. But we only like visit those places, we don't live in those places. Most of life feels like being in the valley, where, where there's conflict, where there's maybe despair. Here in Mark's gospel, as in any good story, valleys are not just valleys. Just like last week, mountains are not just mountains, valleys are not just valleys. Valleys are crucibles. Valleys are change agents. Valleys are what make life interesting. Conflict is actually what makes life interesting. Because typically, valleys are the place of struggle and conflict. This is a place where things grow and things change and struggle happens. Now, how do we explain valleys? How do valleys happen? How do you find yourself in a valley? Valleys in life are created when our desire for something leads us to act in the world in a certain way. And that, that action is met with unexpected reaction. So a valley happens typically when we, we want something in life and we go after it. We, make, we, we actually act upon the world. And then when we act upon the world, the thing that we get back when we act upon the world is not what we expected. This oftentimes plunges us into a valley. For example, in our story, a dad of a boy who had demonic epileptic seizures and who was also deaf and mute brings his son to Jesus to have him healed. He desires that his son is made well, so he acts in the world. He's like, I'm going to bring him to Jesus. And so he does. He brings him to Jesus. And then he's met with something he did not expect. And that is Jesus is gone. Where's Jesus? Oh, he's up on a mountain. Oh, that again? Like where? I want to talk with him. He's not here. His disciples are here, though. Disciples, I, I have a boy who um, has demonic possession and throws himself into seizures. Oh, we know how to deal with the demonic. We, Jesus empowered us to do that. Let us heal your son. And that action is met with unexpected, like, he's not, be able, he's not able to be healed. And this plunges the father into a valley of further suffering for the dad and the boy. The dad's already gone through suffering, but he goes through further suffering. At the same time, the disciples find themselves in a valley too because they have the power. Jesus gave them the power to cast out demons. And so they meet this demonic boy and they're like, oh, we know how to do this. Jesus gave us the power to do this. And so we're gonna 
We're going to act upon the world the way that we know. And we expect this demon will go away because we've done this many times. So they do, and this boy doesn't get delivered over and over and over again. And so the unexpected reaction of the world hits them, and it plunges them into a valley too. And then all of a sudden, everyone's arguing and fighting, and so everyone is in this valley. Now, this maps over our lives as well. You may desire to find a partner in this life, someone to love, someone who loves you in return. And not just anyone, maybe someone who loves God, shares your convictions, or at least is curious enough to want to share your convictions. So you act on the world. You act in the world. Dating apps is one way to act in the world. Saying yes to a blind date or two, going to church, trying to meet new people. And what is expected, what you think happens, what happens in almost every single movie, is that you find the person, and that's how the story goes. But what happens when that doesn't happen? Your action is met with unexpected reaction of remaining single. And typically this opens up a valley for you. And this valley you experience the things that people in valleys experience, disorientation, loneliness, pain, and unbelief. Now, of course, you can map that right over your careers or your friendships or your family. This is human experience. You act in the world, you expect something to happen, and then it doesn't. For me, I had this deep desire for my mom to meet my son. And I acted upon the world. We acted upon the world. I prayed. We did the treatment. And we almost got there. But about a month before our son Nowen was born, my mom's body was taken over by cancer. And for me, it opened up a valley that I'm still in right now, to be honest. Like still in this very, very deep valley. The thing about valleys is that valleys is where the real stories happen, though. This is where character is developed. This is where a character is developed. The valley is where who you are, who you really are, comes out, and change is able to happen. So what are the lessons from the valley, according to our text this morning? I want to give you, like I did last week, three lessons from the valley. Lesson one. In the valley, we're invited to focus on what's wrong. In the valley, we're invited to focus on what's wrong. What I mean here is that typically, when things are good, when you're on the mountaintop, you're not focused, nor are you even thinking about what's wrong. More than that, the things that are wrong on the mountain are easily forgotten because they're small in comparison to all the good that's happening around you. This last week, I was reminded of the story of um, Ashley and I, our wedding day. We're, uh, we'll be married for 20 years this October. So we're coming up in 20 years married. And um, someone said, wow. Yeah, 20 years <laughs> is a wow moment. Yes, wow is exactly right. Um, and I remember on our wedding, I was just reminded of this last week. On our wedding day, we had a, we had a dry wedding, partly because I, our, our church where I was from, um, I was a youth pastor, no, no drinking was allowed. Uh, other, second, we had a bunch, I was a youth pastor, so a bunch of kids were there. And um, so we had a dry wedding, and, um, and we had, like, champagne for the toast and all that stuff. So uh, I'm at the wedding, and this is the mountaintop. I mean, literally the mountaintop. This is good. It's so good. Our wedding was so fun, so good. But then I, I saw um, people walking around with red cups. I was like, red, what are you doing with red cups? 
So I'm looking and I see people like in a line with red cups, holding red cups. So I follow the line and I follow it around a hallway and down a room and then into a closet and at the end of the red cups was my dad <laughs> pumping a keg of beer. Like, like mid-pump, like seriously, like pumping a keg of beer. And I just went, I, Dad, what are you, and he looks up at me like he's caught, like he's busted. He's like, Dave, I'm like, what are you doing? What are you, do, what are you doing? He's like, Dave, how can I not drink on my son's wedding? Like it's my fault, like it's my, I don't know. I'm like, are you kidding me? There's like a bunch of kids around. It's, I said, it was not, what are you doing? He goes, Dave, my family's here. I'm, we're gonna drink. Now, at that moment, I was on the mountaintop. I wasn't about to focus on my dad's lying or our relational stuff that doesn't allow him to be honest in front of me or like all the stuff that we buried. I wasn't about to focus on all that because I was on the mountaintop. I just like, I kind of rolled my eyes like we were in some sort of sitcom. Like, uh-huh, my dad. <laughs> wah, wah. I walked away. And I like started partying. Like, this is fun. This is like the funnest night, one of the funnest nights of my life. Now, obviously, we had to deal with that later on. And things like that came up later in life, and we've dealt with a lot of stuff. Still some stuff to deal with. But anyways, we have dealt with a lot of that stuff. But when you're on the mountaintop, you, even this stuff does, can't even bring you, even that kind of stuff, like this like, miscommunication between your family or this thing that happens, you can kind of like shrug it off or laugh it off or like, can you believe this happened sort of thing. But when you're in the valley, you have to face all of it. When you're in the valley, all the stuff that you didn't face when you're on the mountaintop comes rushing back to you. Oh, you didn't deal with that. Oh, you didn't deal with that. Oh, what about this? Oh, what about this? It all comes to you. But in the, when you're in the valley, you are invited to do the hard soul work of what's really wrong. In verse 20, it says that when the spirit saw Jesus, it threw the boy into a demonic convulsion, rolling around, and it has this very interesting thing, uh, foaming at the mouth. So this is very graphic, right? And at this point, if you see someone in a full-on like seizure like this, especially a demonic seizure, uh, normal emergency response protocol is to protect the victim, to get down on the ground and do something, but Jesus doesn't do any of that. I've always found this so fascinating. Jesus just stands there. Then he asks the dad a question. He says, how long has he been like this? Now, if you are, my dad was, um, he retired now, but was a fire, firefighter, and, I mean, I've been around a lot of times when my dad had to, like, jump into emergency response. And you try to walk into it pretty cool-headed, not, like, overly, overly emotional, but you act. But Jesus doesn't really do that. He just stands there and just, like, how long has he been like this? Now, this question in this valley allows the Father to really open his heart. See, Jesus is a master at questions. He knows the exact question to ask at the exact time. This is Jesus' way of asking what's wrong. Not just what's wrong right now, but what's been wrong. What's really wrong? What's the stuff that's deep in your heart? He invites this question. And this question allows the father to tell a story that this boy has been afflicted since childhood. Like, I've, since childhood, something's happened where he, not only is this clinically, like, epilepsy, but this is also demonic. And he's nearly died several times from this. He's basically saying to um, Jesus that everything is wrong where it matters most. Like, he might have a great job and a great career and a great home and a great family, but where it matters most, his children, his child, that's where everything is wrong. 
But more than that, it allows the father to declare his heart, his hope, his desire. This isn't just facts. He's not, well, he's been like this since the age of three, and this is what happened, and here's our charts of things, and we've taken a journal of what. There, there is fact, but there's more than facts. There's hope, there's desire, there's longing. See, this question allows his, the dad of this boy to come to Jesus as a total person, saying, if, if you would just have compassion on us, pity on us, would you please heal him? This question allows the dad to come to, to come to Jesus as a total person with hard facts and his human hopes. This is why the worst question, or maybe the best question, just depends, the worst question to ask someone when they're in the valley is, how are you doing? That's the worst, it's the best question if you have time, but it's typically the worst question because people in the valley don't want to answer how they're doing. You don't want to answer it you don't, because you would answer it with facts and with deep longings. You would answer it with everything. It would just invite you to pour out your soul to someone else. But people don't have time for that. Like, how are you doing? Well, I live life between the craziest joy of having a son that I never thought I would have and the deepest pain of him not being able to meet my mom or, and smell her smell and to hear her voice outside of the womb and experience her kisses, and I really want her back. That's how I'm doing. You want to know how I'm doing? That's how I'm doing. So when people ask, how are you doing? You're like, how am I doing? I don't even know how to answer that question. So when Jesus asks this question, he really wants to know. Like in the middle of a, like a, a full seizure, he wants to know what's going on, what's wrong, what's, what, what is it? Before Jesus does anything, he's pulling out of this father all of this stuff, all of his pain, all of his hope, all of his longing, all of it. In the valley, you're able to deal with this stuff. You're able to actually answer the question, how are you doing? Well, this is how I'm doing because it's all right there on the surface, all of it. All the nerve endings are there. On the mountaintop, you don't feel anything. How are you doing? I'm awesome. Great. Things are great. But in the valley, like, no. I know where all the pain points are right now. The valleys of life put you in touch with your longing. They let you articulate your pain and they turn it into a form of prayer. That's what the valleys do. They, they really put you in touch with the things that you really want in life. They help you articulate your pain. And then, like this father, if you're able, it turns it into a form of prayer. For this dad, it was have mercy on us. Have compassion, or maybe your translation says take pity on us. Now, for the disciples, the entire this entire story focuses on their failure. This is very interesting. Typically, the focus of Jesus' healings, his miraculous powers, are always focused on his power or the amazement of the crowd of how in the world does he do this? Who is this? <clears throat> this is the only time, and this is, again, the second half of Mark, where <clears throat> the, the focus of the story is not on Jesus' power or what Jesus did, but on the disciples' failure, which teaches us another lesson about the valley. See, the valley is where your failures can actually get addressed. So you don't learn that much on the mountaintop. You don't learn that much when you're crushing it. When you're on a roll and you're just crushing it and crushing it and crushing it and you're like Midas, everything you do and everything you touch turns to gold. You don't learn that much. You don't even know where your, your failures are. You don't see your, bl your blind spots. You don't see any of that stuff. But when you're in the valley, you can address your failures. You can address what's wrong. You can address why in the world did this not work. See, the disciples typically, <clears throat> up to this point, 
were given the power and the authority to cast out demons, but here they couldn't. And the whole story focuses on their failure, where at the end of Jesus finally healing this boy, they go, why couldn't we cast it out? Can we talk about our failure? Which is the lesson. And the lesson, the disciples will learn about prayer here, we'll get to it in a second. They couldn't learn any other time than in their failure. There's something about the valley that we go in that it, it allows us to look at our failures in the eyes and do something about them. In the valleys, we're driven to questions like, why isn't this working? These are good questions and questions we only ask in the valley. And the valley actually draws us to seek God in new ways. It draws us into community. We make hard decisions about community in the valleys. We make, we make decisions about going to therapy in the valley. Things that we normally wouldn't do on the mountaintop, we actually do in the valley. The valley teaches us, if we let it, the lesson that it teaches us is to focus on what's wrong. Second thing, lesson two. Lesson two is this. Sometimes things get worse before they get better. Here's another way to frame it. Here's a more provocative way to frame it. Turning to Jesus often makes life worse. If you want to write it down that way, because that resonates with you, write it down that way, because that's actually what this story is teaching us as well. Turning to Jesus often makes your life worse. In verse 25, when Jesus rebukes the demonic spirit and commands the, uh, the spirit to come out of the boy, it says that the spirit shrieked and convulsed the boy so violently that the, that the boy fell down on the ground and the demon came out and the boy lay on the ground dead. He looked like a corpse. Now, you, Mark's story is told really, really fast, so you might be like tempted just to skip over that, but then Jesus picks up the boy but again, this is all ha like for time is compressed, like a Christopher Nolan film. For this dad, time is compressed. Everything is slowing down. So he sees his son on the ground dead. So not only does he go to Jesus, and Jesus isn't there, and when Jesus is there, throws his son into a violent convulsion, and not only that, when he, does, he tells the demon to come out, it shakes the boy so violently that he basically dies. Imagine being this dad. Your child is being constantly overtaken by this demon. There's honestly um, something that I've learned being a parent is that there's no more helpless of a feeling than when your kid is sick and you could do nothing about it. Like a few weeks ago, our daughter was really sick and her heart rate was up to where like you have to take her to the ER and her fever was insane and we, Ash and I were standing in the kitchen just like, what do we do? We could do nothing. Like the Tylenol wasn't working, the like cold bath or ice wasn't like nothing was working. And we were like texting friends and texting people to like nurses that we knew. We were like, what do we do? Do we take her to the ER? If we call the advice nurse, of course they're gonna say take her to the ER, but it's middle of the night, we take our son out as well. Like all of the stuff, and we just felt so helpless. I cannot imagine this over and over and over again for this dad. And then you bring your son to Jesus and then your son dies. I don't think enough people say this, but turning to Jesus can make your life worse. And I think this is very true. Um, when I came to faith in Jesus, I got kicked out of school like a couple months later, and that's a big deal when you're in high school, like that's your life. 
and I turn to Christ, and I'm like, I'm, gonna Christ I'm a Christian now, and then I get kicked out of school. Of course, I was selling drugs at the time. It was on me. <laughs> I'm not blaming Jesus for that. But from the, from, there are other details that you must know in this story. But from, from my perspective, from my like high school, don't know that much perspective, I go to Jesus and life gets exceedingly worse. Some people that turn to Christ away from some sort, all, all kinds of addiction, um, codependency, all sorts of different things that they've turned to their entire life and they turn to Jesus. There's always this gap of like the drugs and the things that I cope with don't work anymore because I cut them off, but learning how to follow Jesus faithfully and trust in his sufficiency hasn't really kicked in either because I don't really know how to do that and there's this gap where life gets really bad. And that happens over and over again, by the way, in your, in your discipleship to Jesus. And what we learn in the valley is to hold on to trust in promise, to trust in word, to hold on to hope, to like actually kind of get stubborn for hope, to get stubborn, to go, you said this, God, and I'm gonna believe it, even though my life has gotten way worse since trusting in you, I'm gonna keep on, I'm gonna keep on hoping. Third lesson that we learn in the valley is, in the valley is where we learn to trust. Now, of course, all of this comes together in the boy actually being raised from the dead, but there's all sorts of lessons to learn in this. This whole story is actually about faith. This whole story turns on the issue of faith. Faith is at the heart of the disciples' problem with the demon. Why couldn't we cast this thing out? Jesus says, well, this kind of only comes out by prayer, and we'll talk about that in a second. It's faith. Faith is at the heart of this father's conversation with Jesus. Actually, if you zoom out, and we've been trying to do this over the last few weeks, several weeks, is zoom out when you get the big picture. Jesus just told the disciples that he's going to the cross, and they still don't believe him, and they still don't understand that. They still don't believe his words that he's going to the cross. And so they go to the mountaintop to hear the father's words, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Everything that he's telling you about the cross is true, and they still don't believe they're actually the ones who, this story is a symbolic, it happened, but, it, but stories mean more than the stories on the surface. It's symbolic as well. Mountain is symbolic, valley is symbolic. So is the story. It's also, Mark puts it here as a, as a symbol. It happened, but it's also a symbol. Who's, who, are, who are the ones that are actually possessed by the evil one and are, are deaf to God's words? The disciples. Jesus just said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Like these disciples are still have the things of Satan or the things of man in their head. Their, their, their impulses are still satanic, so to speak. Don't think of satanic as evil in the sense it's evil, but it's evil in the sense that it opposes the things of God. So Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. He's like, there's still satanic and demonic activity. Like the things of man are on their mind, not the things of God. And there's also like a, 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 like a deafness. Like we can't hear what you're saying, like the boy. This boy is actually like the disciples. And what the disciples need is intervention from Jesus. The disciples, the, the hope the disciples need is intervention of Christ. So this whole story turns on faith. The disciples don't have faith. The disciples are deaf to, to trusting in, in what Jesus has said. They're, they're, they have they're on their mind the issues of man, not the issues of God. And through this valley, we get the most famous of all prayers, prayed to Jesus in the Gospels, I believe, 
And it's, I believe, help my unbelief. This is one of the most potent and beautiful prayers in the New Testament. I believe, help my unbelief. Now, what was the father saying when he said that? Jesus said, anything is possible for those who believe. He goes, I believe, help my unbelief. Is he saying, I believe 30%, I have 30% belief and 70% unbelief. Someone check my math on that. 30 belief, 70 unbelief. And what I need you to do is I need you to bring my unbelief up to where there's a tilt of like, my belief is enough for you to like do something. It's like, is that what he's saying? Like, I, I believe 30%, I'm unbelieving 70%, so could you like give me some belief so I, the, the, the scales will flip and you can do something. Is that what he's saying? And that's, by the way, that's not what he's saying. You're like, whoa, this is actually, oh, this is a great, I'm, I'm a math person, this, I, this makes sense. That's, that's not what's happening. Jesus, this man is not asking Jesus to get him to a workable number. What, can you, what do you work with? 80% faith? Get my faith to 80%. That is not, that is not what's happening here. It's about dependency. It's about taking all that you have and all that you are to Jesus just as you are. Not going, Jesus, yeah, I believe. And in your head, you're like, oh, I kind of don't believe. But, you know, I believe. I'm going to work. I believe. It's like, I, I believe, but I, there's, I actually don't believe. I'm going to be honest. I'll come to you just as I am. I believe and I don't believe at the same time. I'm ta- I, it's about taking all that you have and all that you are just as you are to Jesus. This is dependency. And dependency really means that you take your doubt and you surrender, it, you surrender your doubt to God. You don't take your doubt and you hold on to it and you fester on it and you focus on it. You actually, a, a, a faith in God, a dependency on God that Jesus is really looking for, that God is looking for, is, a, is not that you don't have any doubt at all because we all have doubt, but it's taking your doubt and surrendering to God. Saying, God, here are my doubts, but I believe you are bigger than my doubts. Help my unbelief. And this is a very good symbol for the Christian disciple because logically faith and unbelief are opposites. But in the Christian experience, faith and unbelief are simultaneous realities. They actually happen at the same time. And we need to to normalize this. The one who believes is always concurrently involved in a battle against unbelief. This is normal. If you're like, I believe, but you know how much doubt I face every single day? I will tell you that that is very normal. For you to believe and then you to doubt at the same time is a very normal thing. Here's why. Belief is always creeping into maybe your marriage, your relationships, your prayer time, your identity, and your relationships. Um, It feels like unbelief always wants to take over. Why does it always feel this way? Well, because faith is not a secure possession attained once for all. Listen to me. Faith is not just like, I had faith when I was a kid and I always have faith. Faith is not a secure possession. God is a secure possession, but your faith isn't. Our faith is always being threatened by the, by the reassertion of our unbelief, which, which forms in us a dependence. So every single time you have belief in something, there will always be this law of entropy that's taking over pulling you to unbelief, and you always need to surrender that unbelief to God, always. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. All the time, always. It's not that you, if you think that I believe that one time and I should always have a secure faith as I did at youth camp in, you know, 74 or whatever, that just doesn't happen. You believe and there's moments of doubt, and then you surrender your doubt to God. And then you believe and you surrender your doubt to God. 
unbelief always creeps in. So this dad pleads for help as he is a doubter. He's the only one in the story to confess his weakness. Even the disciples, when they left, they're like, hey, Jesus, why couldn't we do that? They don't want to, they don't want to confess their weakness in front of anybody. They don't want to talk about the fact that they failed. This dad is the only one who confesses his weakness, which means he comes to Jesus not on his own merit, not on his own strong faith, but on Jesus' ability to intervene and save. The disciples, in verse 28, asked why they couldn't cast out the demon, and Jesus says this really cryptic thing because he says this kind, which means there's a kind of demon that only comes out through prayer, but interesting, if you read the story, Jesus never prays. You're like, whoa, you didn't pray. It didn't record Jesus like, this kind of only comes out by prayer. And he prays before he casts out the demon. He just casts out the demon. What does, it mean? what does prayer mean? This is the first time Mark uses prayer in his entire gospel. He only uses it a couple times. It'll come up again in a little bit. But this is the first time Mark uses prayer. This kind can only come out by prayer. Jesus wasn't talking about a specific incantation or magical prayer. Jesus was, must have been talking about complete dependence on God. Complete de- Jesus walked with the Father constantly, and the thing that happened with the disciples was that they trusted in like, their own ability. They didn't confess their weakness. Confessing weakness, like the dad does here, I believe, help my belief, unbelief, is so hard. Especially for people who are successful or skilled. If you're successful in what you do, if you got yourself through university, through grad school, if you are, if you started some sort of company in the Bay Area or whatever, you will consider yourself a successful or skilled person. Appearing weak is just incompatible with what you think, how you think life should go. And I'll tell you, as someone who like, still struggles with this, like this morning struggling with this, I teach and communicate the Bible on a regular basis, and there's some, there's some uh, seasons of my life where I f- feel like, I think I f- finally figured out this whole preaching thing. I can like almost take this on the road. I think I figured this thing out. <laughs> and then the, like the next week, I like I forget how to do it all over again, and it's so maddening. It's so maddening. I do the thing. I do the prep. I do the prayer. I do the writing. And nothing happens, and you write, and then nothing. This feels like why am I even saying these words together? And this doesn't make any sense. And then you show up to church like I did this morning. By the way, this is real time. And we're with the prayer team this morning. Is there anything you want to share, Dave, about today? And of course I can say, can we just pray for the power of God? I can say that. And it's true, I do want that. Or I can say, I just feel like I just don't know what I'm doing anymore. And then all of a sudden something happens. Confessing that as someone who's done this as a career for a long time is really hard to do. To go to Jesus like, Jesus, I don't really know how to teach and preach, or pastor, could you help me? When someone who does this for a career and done this for a long time and is somewhat successful at it, 
in terms of like what you people would deem successful is super strange. And I honestly don't like doing it. I don't like saying, I don't know how to do this. I forgot, I think. Or maybe this is not how it works. Is like your adequacy has actually get this job done. Maybe it's your inadequacy that gets the job done because then you're dependent upon God who's actually at work. I don't know how this all works, but I'm here again where I need you. And that's really, uh, that's really hard to do. That's hard to do for people who are successful in whatever field you are. That's hard to do if you've like, I've taught the Bible, I've done the thing for so long, I know how to do this thing. To confess all over again, like the disciples who were literally commissioned and empowered by Jesus to cast out demons, to realize that the power didn't really come from them but came from God himself is a hard thing to do. But when you do that, when you confess your weakness, when you confess your struggle, when you confess, I need help, I believe, help my unbelief, at that moment, God has something to work with. Anything is possible for him who believes. Who believes what? That all is from God and none of it really is from us. Some of it, we show up, we do what we can do, but really the power is from God. Earlier I said this story is life in, in miniature, the ups and downs of life in miniature. But this is also the gospel in miniature. People in the um, early church that were uh, evangelizing would travel with these short stories because it best encapsulated the gospel. Jesus was on the mountain and the glory of God was around him and he shone and Moses and Elijah were there and it was beautiful. And then Jesus left the glory and he came into the valley of confusion to deliver, to teach, and to save. This itself is the gospel miniature. Jesus coming off the mount of glory and transfiguration. He could have stayed there forever, but he didn't. And he chose again to go down in the valley, ultimately to the cross for us, to save us, to deliver us, to teach us, to call us to follow him. This is actually not just life in miniature, because life goes like this, ups and downs, but this is the gospel in miniature. This is Jesus himself going from glory into the chaos of our lives to show himself faithful, to call us to believe, to call us to dependence in prayer. Let's pray. Well, this morning uh, in prayer, there was this word about um, people just being invited to trust in Jesus. And I, I want that invitation to happen this morning for those who with their a little belief and a, and a little doubt or a little belief and a lot of doubt to come just as you are this morning to Jesus. And for those who, in here who it's really hard for you to confess weakness because you're really good at what you do and it's hard to confess like I, maybe I don't know what I'm doing or maybe I need help Maybe I do need like God to intervene. This kind can only come out by prayer. My prayer for you is that you would be dependent upon God, that you would trust in Jesus' sufficient love and grace and salvation. And Jesus, I pray that right now as we respond to you, that we respond to you in faith. And that faith might look like this like doubt, and, un and belief together or the faith might look like I just need you, that's it, I'm desperate. But we would come to you in faith in Jesus' name.